Hey, and welcome back to the Cory Doctor podcast. This is the Calm Before the Storm edition. I just got a couple of days as I record this before I hit the road and go out on tour with my new novel, The Bezel, sequel to Red Team Blues. And this is my last weekend before that happens. So as I record this on Saturday, planning to go see my daughter's dance competition. She's on a dance team at high school. And I'm getting to record a podcast, which I may be able to do next Sunday. Hard to say for sure. But later this week, all bets are off because I'm hitting the road with this new book. And I hope you'll come out and see me. And I hope you'll bring friends. A lot of independent bookstores are really struggling right now. Putting on these events is expensive for them. And uh, almost without exception, they've agreed to do this without paid tickets, which is normally how these bookstores recoup because they can't afford to lose money on events anymore. And I told them, no, I'd bring out a crowd and I'd exhort that crowd to buy books, but we wouldn't sell tickets. So I hope you will consider coming out to these events. And if you do, bring a friend, bring two, make them fall in love with your best community bookstore and make sure that bookstore can bring in lots of people in the uh, months and years to come. This is a way to strengthen your community and its ties to literature. The tour kicks off on February 21st. I'll be in Salt Lake City at the wonderful Weller Bookworks. And on the 22nd of February, I'll be in San Diego at Mysterious Galaxy. On the 24th of February, I'll be at Vroman's in Pasadena with my very special guest, Adam Conover. Adam ruins everything, Adam. And on February 26th, I'll be at Third Place Books in Seattle with another very, very special guest, Neil Stevenson, Mr. Cryptonomicon himself. I'll be in Phoenix at Changing Hands Books on February the 29th and at the Tucson Festival of Books on March 9th and 10th. I'm going to be at the San Francisco Public Library on the 13th of March. I think there's going to be another very special guest for this, but I'm waiting to hear back from them. And then there's three events whose dates are not quite fixed yet. I'm going to be in Toronto on either the 23rd or 24th of March. And then I'll be in New York City and D.C. somewhere around the 25th through 27th of March. March 29th, I'll be back in Southern California at WonderCon in Anaheim. On the 11th of April, I will be in Boston with Randall XKCD Monroe. And then on the 12th of April, I'll be in Providence, Rhode Island at RISD for their Debates in AI event. I'm coming to Chicago to do an event at Anderson's Books on April the 17th. And then I'm going to Turin, Torino, Italy, April 19th through 21st. I'll be in Winnipeg at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives on May the 2nd, and I'll be in Tartu, Estonia, May 5th through 11th for the Prima Vista Literary Festival. I'll be in Amherst, New York to give the keynote at the Media Ecology Association Conference. And then after the tour, I'll be in Chicago on July 21st to give a keynote at the American Association of Law Libraries. I'm also going to be in Calgary and Vancouver, although those dates are still so TBD that I can't even give you a tentative date. But all of those and maybe some more are coming up between now and uh, June. And so I hope you'll come out. I hope you bring friends. I hope you'll support these local booksellers. And I hope you'll come up and say hello and get a book signed. All right, so this week, I'm going to read to a very topical post that I put on Pluralistic. It's called How I Got Scammed. And I say it's topical because as I read this, the most viral story on the internet, my corner of the internet, is how Charlotte Coles, the New York Magazine personal finance columnist, got talked by a con artist into taking $50,000 out of the bank 
wrapping it in tape in a shoebox and handing it to a stranger on her curb. That is a wild ride. It's much wilder than the story of how I got scammed, and thankfully, I didn't lose any money. But in both cases, the story tells you something very important about how scams work and how we fall for them and why you might get scammed next and how to avoid getting scammed in the future, because that's something we all need some help with. All right, without any further ado, from the February 5th edition of Pluralistic.net, here is How I Got Scammed. I was robbed. More specifically, I was tricked by a phone fisher pretending to be from my bank And he convinced me to hand over my credit card number, then did more than $8,000 worth of fraud with it before I figured out what happened. And then he tried to do it again a week later. Here's what happened. Over the Christmas holiday, I traveled to New Orleans. The day we landed, I hit a Chase ATM in the French Quarter for some cash, but the machine declined the transaction. Later in the day, we passed a little credit union's ATM, and I used that one instead. I bank with a one-branch credit union, and generally there's no fee to use another credit union's ATM. A couple days later, I got a call from my credit union. It was a weekend, during the holiday, and the guy who called was obviously working for my little credit union's after-hours fraud contractor. I dealt with these folks before. They service a ton of little credit unions, and generally, the call quality isn't great, and the staff will often make mistakes like mispronouncing my credit union's name. That's what happened here. The guy had a terrible voice over IP line, and I had to ask him to readjust his mic before I could even understand him. He mispronounced my bank's name and then asked if I'd attempted to spend $1,000 at an Apple store in New York City that day. No, I said, and groaned inwardly. What a pain in the ass. Obviously, I'd had my ATM card skimmed, either at that Chase ATM, maybe that was why the transaction failed, or at the other credit union's ATM. It had been a very cheap-looking system. I told the guy to block my card, and we started going through the tedious business of running through my recent transactions, verifying my identity, and so on. It dragged on and on. These were my last hours in New Orleans, and I'd left my family at home and gone out to see some of the pre-Mardi Gras cruise celebrations and get a mufalada, and I could tell I was going to run out of time before I finished talking to this guy. Look, I said, you got all my details. You've frozen the card. I got to go home and meet my family and head to the airport. I'll call you back on the after hours number once I'm through security, all right? He was frustrated, but that was his problem. I hung up, got my sandwich, went to the airport, and we checked in. It was total chaos. An Alaska Air 737 MAX had just lost its door plug in midair, and every MAX and every airline's fleet had been grounded, so the check-in was crammed with people trying to rebook. We got through to the gate, and I sat down to call the credit union's after-hours line. The person on the other end told me that she could only handle lost and stolen cards, not fraud. And given that I'd already frozen the card, I should just drop by the branch on Monday to get a new one. We flew home, and later the next day, I logged into my account and made a list of all the fraudulent transactions and printed them out. And on Monday morning, I drove to the bank to deal with all the paperwork. The folks at the credit union were even more pissed than I was. The fraud had run up to more than $8,000, and if Visa refused to take it out of the merchants where the card had been used, my little credit union would have to eat the loss. 
I agreed and commiserated, but I also pointed out that their outsource after-hours fraud center bore some blame here. I canceled the card on Saturday, and most of the fraud had taken place on Sunday? Something had gone wrong. One cool thing about banking at a tiny credit union is that you end up talking to people who have actual authority, responsibility, and agency. It turned out that the woman who was processing my fraud paperwork was a vice president, and she decided to look into it. A few minutes later, she came back and told me that the fraud center had no record of having called me on Saturday. That was the fraudster, she said. Oh, shit. I frantically rewound my conversation, trying to figure out if this could possibly be true. I hadn't given him anything apart from some very anodyne info, like what city I live in, which is in my Wikipedia entry, my date of birth, ditto, and the last four digits of my card. Wait a sec. He hadn't asked for the last four digits. He'd asked for the last seven digits. At the time, I'd found that very frustrating, but now the first nine digits are the same for every card you issue, right? I asked the VP. I'd given him my entire card number. God damn it. The thing is, I know a lot about fraud. I'm working on an entire series of novels about this kind of scam. And most summers, I go to DEF CON and I always go to the social engineering competitions where an audience listens as a hacker in a soundproof booth, cold calls merchants with the owner's permission, and tries to con whoever answers the phone into giving up important information. But I'd been conned. Now look, I knew I could be conned. I'd been conned before, 13 years ago, by a Twitter worm that successfully fished my password via DM. That scam had required a miracle of timing. It started the day before, when I'd reset my phone to factory defaults and reinstalled all my apps. That same day, I'd published two big online features that a lot of people were talking about. The next morning, we were late getting out of the house, so by the time my wife and I dropped the kid at daycare I went to the coffee shop, there was a long line. Rather than wait in line with me, my wife sat down to read a newspaper, and so I pulled out my phone and found a Twitter DM from a friend asking, Is this you? With a URL. Assuming this had something to do with those articles I'd published the day before, I clicked the link and got prompted for my Twitter login again. This had been happening all day, because I'd done that mobile reinstall the day before and all my stored passwords had been wiped out. I entered it, but the page timed out. By that time, the coffees were ready. We sat and chatted for a bit, and then went our own ways. I was on the way to the office when I checked my phone again. I had a whole string of DMs from other friends. Each one read, is this you, and had a URL. Oh shit, I'd been fished. If I hadn't reinstalled my mobile operating system the day before, if I hadn't published a pair of big articles the day before, if we hadn't been late getting out the door, if we had been a little more late getting out the door so that I'd have seen the multiple DMs which would have tipped me off. There's a name for this in security circles. Swiss Cheese Security. Imagine multiple slices of Swiss cheese all stacked up, the holes in one slice blocked by the slice below it. All the slices move around, and every now and again, a hole opens up that goes all the way through the stack, and zap! The fraudster who tricked me out of my credit card number had Swiss cheese security on his side. 
Yes, he spoofed my bank's caller ID, but that wouldn't have been enough to fool me if I hadn't been on vacation, having just used a pair of dodgy ATMs, in a hurry, and distracted. If the 737 MAX disaster hadn't happened that day, and I'd had more time at the gate, I'd have called my bank back. If my bank didn't use a slightly crappy outsource out-of-hours fraud center that I'd already had subpar experiences with. If, if, if... The next Friday night, at 5.30 p.m., the fraudster called me back, pretending to be the bank's after-hours center. He told me that my card had been compromised again, but I hadn't removed my card from my wallet since I'd had it replaced. Also, it was half an hour after the bank closed for a long weekend, a very fraud-friendly time, and when I told him that I'd call him back and asked him what the after-hours fraud number was, he got very threatening and warned me that because I'd now been notified about the fraud that any losses the bank suffered after I hung up the phone without completing the fraud protocol would be billed to me. I hung up on him. He called me back immediately. I hung up on him again and put my phone into Do Not Disturb. The following Tuesday, I called my bank and spoke to their head of risk management. I went through everything I'd figured out about the fraudsters, and she told me that credit unions across America were being hit by this scam by fraudsters who somehow knew credit union customers' phone numbers and names and which credit union they banked at. This was key. My phone number is a reasonably well-kept secret. You can get it by spending money with Equifax or another non-consensual doxing giant, but you can't just Google it or get it at any of the free services. The fact that these fraudsters knew where I bank, knew my name, and had my phone number had really caused me to let down my guard. The risk management person and I talked about how the credit union could mitigate this attack. For example, by better training the after-hours card loss staff to be on the alert for calls from people who'd been contacted about supposed card fraud. We also went through the confusing phone menu that had funneled me to the wrong department when I called in, and worked through alternate wording for the menu system that would be clearer. This is the best part about banking with a small credit union. You can talk directly to the responsible person and have a productive discussion. I even convinced her to buy a ticket to next summer's DEF CON and attend the social engineering competitions. There's a leak somewhere in the credit union system's supply chain. Maybe it's Zelle or the small number of corresponding banks that credit unions rely on for swift transaction forwarding. Maybe it's even those after-hours fraud and card loss centers. But all across the USA, credit union customers are getting calls with spoof caller ID from fraudsters who know their registered phone numbers and where they bank. I've been mulling this over for most of a month now, and one thing has been really eating at me. The way that AI is going to make this problem much worse. Not because AI is going to commit fraud, though. One of the truest things I know about AI is, we're nowhere near a place where a bot can do your job, but we're certainly at the point where your boss can be suckered into firing you and replacing you with a bot that fails to do your job. I trusted this fraudster specifically because... I knew that the outsource, out-of-hours contractors my bank uses, have crummy headsets, don't know how to pronounce my bank's name, and have long-ass, tedious, and pointless standardized questionnaires they run through when taking fraud reports. All of this created cover for the fraudster whose plausibility was enhanced by the rough edges in his pitch. They didn't raise red flags. As this kind of fraud reporting and fraud contacting is increasingly outsourced to AI, 
Bank customers will be conditioned to dealing with semi-automated systems that make stupid mistakes, force you to repeat yourself, ask you questions they should already know the answers to, and so on. In other words, AI will groom bank customers to be phishing victims. This is a mistake the finance sector keeps making. Fifteen years ago, Ben Lorry excoriated the UK banks for their verified-by-visa system, which validated credit card transactions by taking users to a third-party site and requiring them to re-enter parts of their password there. This is exactly how a phishing attack works. As Lorry pointed out, this was the banks training their customers to be phished. I came close to getting fished again today, as it happens. I got back from Berlin on Friday and my suitcase was damaged in transit. I've been dealing with the airline, which means I've been really dealing with their third-party outsourced luggage damage service. They have a terrible website, their emails are incoherent, and they officiously demand the same information over and over again. This morning, I got a scam email asking me for more information to complete my damaged luggage claim. It was a terrible email from a no-reply-at-email address, and it was vague, officious, and dishearteningly bureaucratic. For just a moment, my finger hovered over the phishing link, and then I looked a little closer. On any other day, it wouldn't have had a chance. Today, right after I had my luggage wrecked while I'm still jet-lagged and after days of dealing with my airline's terrible outsource partner, it almost worked. So much fraud is a Swiss cheese attack, and while companies can't close all the holes, they can stop creating new ones. Meanwhile, I'll continue to post about it whenever I get scammed. I find the inner workings of scams to be fascinating, and it's also important to remind people that everyone is vulnerable sometimes, and scammers are willing to try endless variations until an attack lands at just the right place, at just the right time, in just the right way. If you think you can't get scammed, that makes you especially vulnerable. All right, then. I hope you will come out for one of those tour stops. The uh, schedule is in the show notes. Also, there's a thing that I thought of after this that I think would address the scams that the banks would have to spend some money on, which is for the banks to tell everyone, anytime you get a phone call from this bank, the only thing we're going to say to you is look at the phone number on your card call it back and give this five-digit number. And the person who called you, who already knows what this is about, is going to sit without having to take another call at the bank's expense for 15 minutes waiting for you to make that call back. So you've got some time to find a place to settle down. Or you can call back later, but you might have to speak to someone at random. But at least you'll have that five-digit number that you can give. But that way you would never, ever, ever give any information to anyone who called you. You would only ever call the bank back from the number on the card. And when you did that, you would have an efficient process, not one of these things where you wait on hold for an hour and then speak to someone who has no idea why you're calling. You would be speaking to the person who initiated the call to you, who'd already reviewed your file, and who could do a quick identity validation and then go straight into it. I think this would actually work really well. And I think that when you look at the losses banks are suffering due to fraud, like 8000 bucks is almost as much as my bank stands to make on me this year, including all the interest on my mortgage. So they basically zeroed out the value of a customer that's worth a ton of money to them. And, you know, they could have avoided it by paying someone in a call center to sit idle for 15 minutes, by paying everyone in call centers 
who call their customers on their behalf to sit idle for up to 15 minutes to make it easier to really deal with bank personnel and their agents when there is a fraud and to distinguish fraud from security. Anyway, that's my million dollar idea, which would save the banks several millions of dollars. I don't have any real hope that they'll do it, but hey, there you go. Anyway, that is that. And that is this. I will talk to you maybe next week. And I really hope I'll see you on the road. Go to the show notes or go to pluralistic.net and click on the upcoming events and you will find all of those tour stops. And I hope you'll get a copy of the bezel and I hope you read it and I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you'll leave online reviews and I hope you tell your friends and you know, all that good stuff you do to help an author. I don't charge money for basically anything I do except these books. And so if you like all that free stuff, this is how to say thank you and make sure that it keeps coming. All right. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>